The roses had the look of flowers that are looked at. From Bert Norton by T.S. Eliot. Welcome to this installment of Epigraph. I'm Ted. And I'm Maria. Today we're going to talk about flowers. And this was inspired when I, I heard a piece by the British thinker and scientist Rupert Sheldrake. And he was discussing beauty in the natural world. And he brought up the reason that people who are, let's say, steeped in a sort of scientific materialism, why are flowers beautiful? And the response is because bees are attracted to them. And his response to that I thought was <coughs> so lovely. He said, why are bees attracted to things that are beautiful? <laughs> Which is just wonderful when you think about an insect that small being attracted to things that are beautiful. And so I, I want to take that as, as a starting point. Well, hang on. I want to clarify that starting okay. point. Are they saying that flowers are beautiful in order to attract bees or bees are attracted to them because they're beautiful? They're or beautiful in order to attract bees. And Sheldrake's point was, well, why is it that bees are attracted to beauty? That's, the, that's, that's his, his rejoinder. Why is the attraction to beauty something that's so universal that it goes all the way down to a honeybee? Mm-hmm. That's, that was his, that's his point. And so I wanted to start with a question of why are flowers beautiful? And um, as you might imagine, there's a lot of ways that you could ask why. Especially if you have young children, you know. <laughs> there's a lot of reasons to why. And I... I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this for many reasons. I think that, I think, because I think there's a a lot of, a lot of different good answers to that question. So, and then we, we've got this, this piece from T.S. Eliot from, from the four quartets, which is, is interesting. It's, it's the, the, the roses had the look, the appearance of flowers that are looked at. Had the look of flowers that are looked at. The look of flowers that are looked at. And, and that immediately raises the question of, uh, for objects in the universe and their relationship to observers, which I think is also very interesting. So why don't we start with, do you have any thoughts on why both people and honeybees seem to have some shared aesthetic sensibility? The first thing that comes to mind, this is not something I've thought about before, is that we have things in common with honeybees and we are like honeybees animals. Now honeybees aren't rational animals, but there is, I mean, in the, the Aristotelian framework, you know, we share the, the anima, Mm -hmm. you know, that Mm -hmm. animal soul. Don't, uh, don't try to pay me down too much on exactly what, anima specifically <laughs> means but but we do have that that animate level of being that we share with the honeybee and on that it's the nutritive soul that's the word i'm looking for on that level there is a certain flourishing that bees share with us mm-hmm. that i think that flowers maybe I mean, what flowers represent in some ways contribute to, like flowers grow well in areas that are going to produce food that's good for us. I don't think that that gets into aesthetics at all. 
but it does perhaps start to get at why we're drawn to that kind of thing. I that so you're you're saying perhaps we're both animals. Flowers are an indication, say, of ecological health or ecological suitability, maybe. And so there's an attraction there mm-hmm. as animals. Let me. I I'm going to present you with something else. I think will probably help connect some of these things together, which, and 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 hopefully be very fruitful. So I, I know that I brought this up to you before um, with a thinker, John Verveke, who's a cognitive psychologist in Canada, who has some very interesting things to say. He's a earnest Neoplatonist. Um, he's done a lot of conversations with Jonathan Bijot and Jordan Peterson and these, these people. And he talks about the, and I've heard him talk about the transcendentals. So the good, the true, and the beautiful. Mm-hmm. And the, help me out, there's a word where they're, it's not that they're interchangeable do you know what I'm talking about? You can, you can, there's a, there's a relation between the transcendentals. Um, well, the way I've heard it formulated, if I'm thinking of the same thing as okay. you are, is that each of the transcendentals is actually coextensive with being. It's yes, being yes. considered Excellent. in relation to something else. So, Excellent. Okay. For example, good is being considered in relation to desire. Excellent. Fantastic. That's, that's exactly what I'm getting at. So Verveke proposes that part of the way that the beauty and truth relate to each other is that beauty is when appearances disclose reality. And I've brought that up to you before mm-hmm. in more or less of a contextual vacuum. And so you said what you did about it, but I want to bring it back because I think I, wish that, I could remember <laughs> <laughs> because I think that this actually is, is really interesting. So do you find artificial flowers beautiful? Rarely. Rarely, right. Especially, I'm particularly thinking like Hobby Lobby, going to end up in a memorial graveyard type flower. Stop. (laughs) Right. Okay. But, but what qualities do they have? Well, they're beautiful. I'm sorry. They're colorful. They're not, I'm not, I'm not, that's begging the question. They're not, we're going to see if they're beautiful. They're colorful. Mm -hmm. Okay. They, they pop out from the landscape around them. They have, many of them have colors that are typically, you know, beautiful things that frequently have. They have sort of the complexity of a flower. And yet, you and most people don't think that they're beautiful, and they're certainly not as beautiful as real flowers. Mm -hmm. Okay, that immediately taps into an entire class of experiences that I find fascinating. So I'm gonna, gonna, I'll bring up a couple more and see, I'm curious if you think they did the same phenomenon. You go up on a mountain above a town at night, and way out below you, there's all the house lights and the street lights. And I've often thought that if there were stars in the sky of an equivalent luminosity, it would absolutely bowl me over. But because they're like sodium lamps and they're down there, they're somehow not anywhere close to as beautiful as the stars are. Do you think that those are, those are, do you see the through line with all of those things? I'm, I'm, I don't buy it yet. I'm not okay. going to say that I won't buy it. Okay. But the major difference that immediately strikes me is okay. that I think we revolt against artificial flowers. Okay. To a certain extent because they are imitations. Yes. And the lights down below are not imitations of the stars. And I don't have any sort of... I don't find myself trying to distance myself from them because they're trying to like, trick me into thinking they're something that they're not, which I think is 
to some degree present when you're talking about the artificial flowers. Okay, well then, then, then I'll, I'll, a third example, costume jewelry. So costume jewelry is interesting to me because it's kind of the same thing as the, as the fake flower. And I never found co- costume jewelry to be beautiful. It's interesting in some ways to me in the same way that like that amusement parks fascinate me as, and that's I, there again, that sort of, uh, Oh goodness. I, there, there's a, someone, I think it's, I think it's Umberto Eco calls it hyper reality. Um, we could talk about that another time, but, but when I was in college, I went to a natural history museum and finally went to the gym room, the gym, you know, mm-hmm. the sort of the, the mineral section. I always previously, I'd always go to the, look at the, the taxidermy and the fossils. And so I finally went to the gym room, the mineral section. And I was, I was, first of all, I was completely shocked at how beautiful the gyms were completely shocked. They were Ironically, I think the term I would have used was unearthly in their beauty, which is exactly what they are, right? <laughs> or not. Yeah, or not. I don't know. But but they they actually make fake jewelry, costume jewelry, less beautiful to me for having seen real enormous sapphire, cut sapphires and mm-hmm. real enormous diamonds and real emeralds and rubies and topazes and on and on and on. So there's something, it seems to me that there's something about that, that imitation of a thing that we do find beautiful to somehow render it, because I find paintings of flowers beautiful. Mm-hmm. I find depictions of gemstones or jewelry beautiful, say in art, descriptions of them. You know, I think about the Lord of the Rings and there's so many descriptions of gemstones and I don't think... Pfft, Ugh, costume jewelry. <laughs> so, so that that's why I wanted to introduce John Verveke's idea of truth, beauty as truth, as as appearances disclosing reality. Because in these things that we find profoundly beautiful in nature, in the natural world, there it seems to me that their artificial counterparts are rendered less beautiful for their what their duplicitousness. Okay, let me bring up a counterexample. Excellent. Something that is in no way artificial and I find exceedingly ugly. Okay. What do we do with the cockroach in that framework? Okay, what, and, and for that matter, maybe we can even <laughs> say, why do I find a cockroach ugly and a flower beautiful? Yes. Well, <laughs> uh, you, the first thought, because, I'll be honest. The first... cockroaches, I'm pretty sure, are disclosing their reality. Yes, well... <laughs> Okay, so maybe part of it is, I'll, I'll, I'll throw I'll throw something out there. I would always rather see a cockroach crawl out from under a rotting log in the woods than I would rather see a cockroach in my kitchen. Okay, so I agree. So there is there is something about the reality that the cockroach is disclosing about my kitchen that is itself ugly, <laughs> okay. maybe, whereas the cockroach in the woods isn't. There is, there's a, and there's almost a fittingness to me to see if I saw a cockroach in the woods, I wouldn't be disgusted by it. I might not want it to crawl on me, but it's not, it doesn't have the same sort of ugliness to, to it as, sorry, when I think, when someone brings up cockroaches, the only thing I could think of is a story that someone shared with me of walking into a camp bathroom and turning the light on in this camping bathroom and having Literally thousands of cockroaches on the walls, ceiling, and floor all run for the floor drain. Oh. 
okay, so my that's my my first thought about cockroaches is part of it is what they're telling me about my house. The second thing is, and I know this sounds weird, but I well, it actually reminds me of that Richard Wilbur poem that you like so much about onions. Do you know the one I'm talking about where there's a description of an onion of an onion skin? Oh, it's not about onions. It's not about. Yes, there's a passage about an onion. It's the shucked tunic of an onion brushed to one side on a backlit chopping board and rocked by trifling currents. Excellent. Yeah. And so, and, and that in my mind is always connected with, uh, this book that we read it. We read a portion of when I was in at Labrie called the, the, the supper of the lamb. And it's by a, a chef and priest. I don't know if he's Catholic, Catholic or Anglican in New York. And it is essentially this book that's both, I think maybe a cookbook, but also a, a guide to contemplating God's blessing and food. But there's an exercise called getting to know your onion. And the whole point of the exercise is that you take a really long time to slowly prepare an onion for eating and appreciate the beauty of it as you go. And okay, when that it, would make me so sad. Well, yes. It's a moving experience. Um, but the reason that, that when you – the first time you quoted that Richard Wilbur poem to me, it, it uh, just absolutely got blazed into – embedded in my mind is because I remember looking at that shuck of an onion and realizing that if you look at it slowly, it has the same pearlescence as the inside of an oyster. Hmm. So it, there's something about that structure there that, that makes it slightly iridescent and it goes from being this sort of ugly brown paper color to this semi-translucent copper covered in iridescence. I mean, it the next time you have a, a white onion or a yellow onion and you take the skin off, look at it slowly under light. It's There's so much beauty there. And so I confess that when he said, I don't find cockroaches beautiful, I thought, you know, I bet if you pulled the cockroaches' wings, uh, the wings off a dead cockroach and held them up under the light, they would look beautiful. <laughs> now, that, granted, there's a difference between a cockroach's wings <laughs> and, a cockroach. and a live cockroach. But I... Is it... Is, So beauty, the idea of beauty as um, appearances disclosing reality. There's, there's, when I think of the cockroach example, for me, spiders are actually an even better example because I don't really respond that much to cockroaches, but spite, I have a deep visceral reaction to spiders. Fascinating. Yeah. I find it actually much easier to appreciate the beauty of a spider than the beauty of a cockroach. Jumping spiders, I can get there, but pretty much everything else, I, I'm actually trying to go through the sort of informal process of exposure therapy to spiders, which started with don't kill them as quickly as possible. Like give them a little bit of time to like, I'm honestly, I'm at the point now where certain small spiders, I can have them on me for a little bit. I'm still not anywhere at like holding a tarantula level, certainly not looking one in the face. Uh, I'm with you on tarantulas. <laughs> I also, you know, I don't get scared by daddy long legs, but they're just ugly to me. Those are ugly. I so okay. So you're. I know you're really familiar with the the Ransom trilogy by C.S. Lewis, his his science fiction trilogy. Uh, mostly with that hideous strength. Not as much with the first two. Okay. Well, then, if you remember the end of Paralondra, and I apologize if if anyone ever ends up listening to this and they haven't read Paralondra, I'm sorry. I'm going to spoil something for you. Do you remember when Ransom is in the caves at the end of it, and? He is, he's crawled through the dark and he comes out of the chamber where there's, there's like the, the, 
subterranean fire or sub Venusian fire because he's on Venus. And this creature, a creature comes out of the hole that he's been in. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this? Vaguely, yes. So, so there's several things that happen in that. First of all, there's, it's an alien creature. It's got these eye stalks. It's got all these eye stalks that come out first and it comes out and it's got these, bo- these three body segments connected by these very narrow, like wasp waists, basically. <laughs> and the, the first description of it is quite horrible. And it comes out of the it comes out of this hole, and then the body of this man who's possessed by Satan himself comes out too, and Ransom destroys the body and casts it into the into the pits of hell, basically. <laughs> and he turns around and he sees the creature, and all of a sudden all the horror is gone. It goes from being this monstrosity that feeds his deepest fears of insects that he has on Earth. And 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 what Lewis is saying there is quite clear that it is the work of the devil that makes us look on God's creations, creation with horror. Mm-hmm. Do you buy that? Do you buy that when I look at a spider and you look at a cockroach, it's not that there's something hideous about them. There's just something bent or broken in our relationship towards them. I don't know if I buy that it is entirely that. Although... Okay. This actually, interestingly, doesn't doesn't push against what Lewis would be saying in Paralandra because that's an unfallen world. But that's true. In our fallen world, there is an element of brokenness within nature as well, where I I don't think we can look at something and say, well, if it were if I just had my sin cleared away, then everything would look beautiful to me. So you because think there's that, a there's already a distortion uh, underlying that, I think. And it may go back to what you were saying about, you know, it discloses that, that something's out of order. The cockroach means yeah. my kitchen is dirty. Well, you know, when you say that it's really interesting. I that it seems to me that the, the maybe the two classes of things that we find most horrid in this world, um, in the natural world are Things that kill things and things that eat dead things. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, cock, I mean that's what cockroaches do. They eat, not, maybe not a dead body, right? But they're they're detritivores. <laughs> mm-hmm. We we don't like things like that. We don't like the things that that well predatory things scare us and and then yeah detritivores and and you know. Vultures. We is don't that like a real vultures. Word or are you making it up? No, no, no. It really is a real word. Detritus. <laughs> okay. Detritus is the stuff that falls down. Well, yeah, I know. And I then get... a detritivore. Yeah, it I, makes perfect sense. But... All the deep, those sort of deep sea pelagic areas where they live on on what marine snow is what the is the oh, polite uh-huh. word for everything that comes out of the rear end of an animal further up. Um, and there's a whole class of animals that just live on that. And some of them are more comical than than horrible. But I, I it does maybe maybe that. That's what's going on there. There is a, we don't like what they're dis, what is disclosing. Um, so then, to bring that back to flowers, what is it about flowers then that we find? I would say almost universally beautiful. That's one thing that's interesting is that with you know, say with animals, there's kind of this. There's two things. Some of them we find quite beautiful, and others we find there's there's a mixture of horror or just you know horror and disgust. Maybe maybe there's no mixture there. What is it about flowers that are so you know that make them so universally beautiful? I'm I'm trying to think. Can I think of a flower that I find 
horrible in any kind of way. I'm curious if you've got anything in your mind. I can think of flowers like spider lilies where I, I don't, the color is not one that appeals to me. Yeah. But I don't think that's the same thing. I can't think of a flower that's You might touch horrible. and draw your hand back after you've touched it, you know, because. Unless it had some strange texture. Yeah. But that's not visual. Yeah. There, I mean, there, there's a, there's a, a, a very small selection of flowers that um, work off of, they're pollinated by those same animals that we find horrible and they smell like rotting flesh, like pop-off flowers. Mm-hmm. There's that giant three foot wide flower in the Amazon basin. There's some orchids that smell like rotting flesh and weirdly enough, they're generally not very aesthetically pleasing to us either, <laughs> which is a, a strange correspondence. Yes. There's something, there's some, well... <laughs> One of the things that seems to be developing here is there's there there does seem to be some some universal qualities to being an, the experience of being an animal, mm-hmm. kind of regardless of your scale of being, which is very interesting. I don't know that I've ever thought about quite that that universality in that way. It seems like those flowers that you're talking about are not meant to appeal to us. And that we are somehow over in the the group of animals that are that find appealing the same thing that bees find appealing. So, you know, that's so, that, so, that yeah. Richard Wilbur poem, yeah, by the way, yeah. actually hints at that. When okay. earlier in the poem, it's talking about all these all these things that we can wonder at, and it ranges from you know these marvelous things, gold crosses and cornices, and then it gets down to grass and grackles and the turbine vent on the diner and he says (laughs) all these things are let's see all these things are there before us there before we look or fail to look there to be seen or not by us as by the bees twelve thousand eyes according to our means and purposes and so we Mm. wow come at these things (laughs) yeah and we look at them and and they're there you know whether or not we give our attention to them and somehow i think our purposes overlap with the bees looking at it with their 12,000 eyes that is so so when you say that 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 immediately raises in my mind a, a very interesting shift and it's one that i i would say i'm actually actively trying to cultivate in my mind and so i'm i'm going to go back a little bit to try to get you where i'm where I am in this process. So my, you know, I spent a lot of time reading and studying biology in high school and in college, all very much sort of late modern reductionistic, mechanistic, scientific view of biology. So it's all, it's all Darwinian. It's all mechanical. It's all means driven. And it's really only after graduating college that I've sort of started to piece together an actual, let's say, philosophically integrated way of viewing the world. Mm-hmm. And in some sense, I've always felt like, a, and this, this is a lot less true now, but I felt like there was sort of a betrayal to what I had learned that as though I somehow to like shut my eyes to the truth that we had learned scientifically. And then I came across this guy named Ernst Gotch, who is a agriculturalist in Brazil. And he's a, fascinating guy. He 
grew up in he was born he was in Austria and studied plant genetics and was kind of disgusted by the sort of uh, manipulative agro-industrial process that he saw going on and ended up moving to Latin America and studying agroforestry. And by studying agroforestry, I mean he ended up buying like a thousand acres of clear-cut land in Brazil. And then spent like 20 or 30 years just reforesting it. It was the immersion method. <laughs> it was very much the immersion method. He, well, it's funny that you say that because when he talks about himself, he says that he is an endobiote of his forest. Huh. He, he literally, I mean, he, the way he talks about it is that he is a part of the wood, the forest. He is integrated into it. So he really is immersed in it quite literally, but He's he's very articulate in Portuguese and German. He's not very articulate in English. Um, and he's fairly well read. Like He'll quote Kant, which is interesting. But he is absolutely convinced that in ecological systems, the primary motivating factor for action is unconditional love. Which I think is really interesting that you can throw someone in the rainforest for 30 years and ha- still have them come out saying, this is, this is based on love. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a, an absolutely astonishing data point, particularly for someone who is trained in agricultural science and also has, like, has some pretty amazing results practically from what he's doing. He's not just sitting around looking at the woods and saying, wow, I love this. Like, he's getting in there and doing really hard work. I mean, you look at the, the man's fingers and they're like, they're just, his hands are gnarled. Like, he spent his life climbing trees, pruning them, you know, with his bare hands. And so, but when he talks about, he, so he talks about things like, what is a monkey or a, a pigeon doing when it's eating figs in the in the forest? Well, one of the things it wants to do is make more fig trees because it loves fig trees. And the fig tree... He, this is his interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. The fig tree wants to make more fig trees because that's what fig trees do. But they also wants to give fruit to these animals. And so when I think about you, when, when what did you could you could quote it back to me? According to our means and ways, means and purposes, means and purposes. According to our means and purposes, it is at least a hint to me that. It is the purpose of honeybees to make the world more beautiful. Here's why, here's why I would suggest that. Part of the reason that Sheldrake comment was so interesting to me is because people have done laboratory studies with bees. And what they have found is that bees are actually equally attracted to extremely simple shapes. So it'd be something, I believe, of something like a white circle with a dot in the middle of it, mm-hmm. which we don't find beautiful. And there's just as attracted to that as flowers. The, to me, this is where the story gets really interesting. So we say, are bees attracted to beauty? Well, yes and no. There's clearly something in which they can, you can sort of have this mechanistic response on the part of the bees to, they get that there's nectar there. They get that there's pollen there and they can go there. On the other hand, they're clearly still going after the flowers that are most the most beautiful because we're maintaining these populations of flowers in the environment that are really beautiful. And it costs the flowers something to do it, and they do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, 
there there seems to be this hint to that that to someone maybe who's not in wasn't ensconced in the biological sciences this may not feel as groundbreaking but to me to look at that and say okay here we are in the nuts and bolts of how this is of, of how this is going on and it sure seems like bees are consciously or unconsciously actively cultivating beauty in the world through the the choices they make pollinating So I'm, I'm unconsciously, yes. I I don't think that you can limit your view of flowers in the world to their relation to bees. Certainly so, not. So you're not, and and I don't think you are doing that. But you wouldn't want to say that flowers are doing this, and therefore it must somehow mean that actually it is more attractive to bees that way because bees aren't the only ones interacting with the flowers. <laughs> Great. Yes. So th- th- thank you for making that, that, making that clear. No, I was, I was actually trying to say the opposite. I'm saying that because bees are picking flowers that are beautiful, even though they can be attracted to flowers that are not nearly as beautiful, there is this sense, it seems as though there's this, and I, and I, I would imagine that if I had eyes to see it, I'd see it in other places. There's a sort of, the, the bees are doing something that makes a, a beauty that is superfluous to their action. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh. There's an excess of beauty produced because that is how flowers continue, right? Mm-hmm. The bees have to be there. The bees are the wasps or the moths. You could expand this out to any pollinating insect. They have to be there to pollinate these flowers so that the, con- the generations of flowers can continue. But that process of the bees caring for themselves through their relationship with the flower produces a superfluousness of beauty. It's, it's more beautiful than it needs to be for the bees. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I'm getting at. That to me, that, that, is, that is, well, it's soul stirring, I'll say that. So there, there's this, how can I put this? I almost want to say that the bees are offering it up. They seem to be offering up the beauty of flowers in that they, in this, do you think it's inappropriate to make an, to draw an analogy between say what the bees do unconsciously through their generations with the flowers to what a person does consciously with a garden? I'm not sure why you're attributing that to the bees rather than to the flowers. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a great... Well, I guess I'm still operating under the assumption that the the expression of the flowers is primarily genetic. And so the bees are the ones who choose. Okay. From generation to generation, right? You have have a thousand flowers out in a field. Where where does the bee go first? Mm Mm-hmm. And it seems to be, just given the stability of flower, the beauty of flowers, at least, you know, in known human history, seems like the bees are going after the beautiful, the flowers that are beautiful and not the ones that just, you know, are enough to let a bee know, hey, I'm a flower here. Mm-hmm. And so there's this, that's what I'm getting at. There's this, there's this movement up of the bees and the flowers together, the bees choosing which flower is going to get pollinated through some, well, this is what's weird. Now, now we're getting back to T.S. Eliot. Okay, so it's the flowers had the appearance of those that are looked at. I, I always had do the, the look of the look of flowers that are looked at. Which flowers are the ones that continue? The ones we look at. 
and the ones the bees look at too. Mm-hmm. It's the ones that we give our attention to and the ones that the bees give their attention to. Which is, okay, so... Well, we also need to take human cultivation into account. Because there are many, many, many beautiful wildflowers, of Yes, course. yeah. But I think that most humans are going to say that there are even more beautiful cultivated flowers. Yes, okay. And yeah. so those are the ones that we've looked at. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, that is, I mean, well, one, I, I do, I really like this. I like that. I like that there is, because you started out by saying, well, maybe the reason we find flowers beautiful as bees do is because there's this shared animality between us, which is fair or not. My mind immediately goes to sort of the more basal aspects of those things. I go, I go down. I think about it sort of in the, we and the bees share maybe like the most basic aspects of our nature. Mm -hmm. But there's this other way in which the bees and humans are maintaining the beauty of the flowers by giving their attention to them, mm-hmm. which to me seems to draw a, a, a much larger circle around what shared, what might be shared in an animal life. Does that make sense? It's that's much, mm-hmm. it, it no longer seems to be a race to the bottom. It's well, it elevates bees. It also makes me think of what C.S. Lewis talks about again in Paralandra about the job of the rational creatures on that planet being to raise up the irrational creatures as much as they can, mm-hmm. which is somewhat, I mean, we do that somewhat with domestication, right? Dogs have, we bring out, and you could argue about this, but it seems to me that we've brought out an extraordinarily high degree of emotional intelligence in some dogs. And so there's a sort of raising, I, I, I it speaks to me that you could look at a honeybee and think the honeybee's attention is important. Like mm-hmm. that, <laughs> that's really cool. That's really mm-hmm. cool. I guess because to me it makes life more alive, for one thing. Mm-hmm. It raises it, again, because I'm, I, at least for myself, as a, as a sad child of the moderns, I'm always trying to make a bee or a tree or myself into a machine, into a mechanical thing. Mm-hmm. And to see instead that there's something else going on there. There's this, however rudimentary, there's a dry, there's a, a sustained movement towards beauty, even in honeybees and pollinating wasps. <laughs> <laughs> that. That's, yeah, that's breathtaking to me. I don't know. So, so why do you think I, that's, that's one way of saying, why do you think flowers are beautiful? I, you, I, I, I respect your aesthetic taste a lot. Why do you think that flowers are beautiful now in the sense of how they look? What is it that we find? Yeah. What is it that we find beautiful about flowers? And then is that related to the the earlier part of this discussion? But well, there's the color to start there Uh, and the infinite variety of color. I think one of the things that we do enjoy about real flowers, and this is kind of pushing back against what you said earlier about artificial flowers. Okay. You know, artificial flowers never really achieve the colors that real flowers do. There is a certain... Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to say delicacy, 
of tint because that doesn't make sense in the context of something like a red rose. Yeah. But there's a... And purity doesn't work either when you're talking about color because we use it to mean something else. How about this? There's, there's a, a truthfulness. Of, yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. There's a, Excellent. There's a trueness of the color. Okay. So maybe that, beauty that is appearance is disclosing reality. It's just it's well, just interesting. I, I don't know. What, there, but it, why? It's not. It's a. Yeah, I can't keep him back to these words, but somehow it does. It doesn't quite work because I I don't deny the reality of something that we have made. And so I don't want to say something that implies that like, artificial flowers are fake rather than artifacts. Okay, I, I'll bring up an, uh, an ex- what to me is really illuminating in this too is I had a friend in college who was, brief, he was very skilled artistically and so he's the kind of guy who could just pick stuff up and pretty much immediately be really good at it. And so for like three weeks, he was really interested in making ornate paper flowers. Mm -hmm. And they were beautiful. But they never pretended to be a flower. Mm -hmm. Like they were beautiful in their own right, which is interesting. Uh You know, it was, I think particularly dahlias. He made a lot of dahlias. You know, and complicated flowers, Uh very complicated things. And and there was an appreciation too for like the effort that he put into it and the amount of dexterity necessary. But... Again, that's so that that's beautiful because it's a paper flower, not because it's something that almost looks like a flower. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, you, uh, but I think that those things do isolate elements of things that we find beautiful in flowers. And okay. to me, yeah, the, the yeah. artificial flowers are the ones that just miss on all the different on aspects all the of things, flowers. rather than so capturing they, really the capturing a little one. off. The form's a little off. They smell wrong. The texture's a little off. But when we take aspects of the flowers and sort of isolate them, so you have a paper flower that that shares the flower's physical, like, geometrical form. Yes. Or you have something, you know, embroidery floss that that captures the color of a flower with maybe the sheen, depending on what the flower is, or a perfume that captures the flower's scent. Those things, I think, we do enjoy in the same way that we enjoy them in the flower. That, that is a really interesting point. And so it reminds me of, for a long time, I've really liked the sort of botanical illustrations coming out of the 1800s, where it'd be a flower or a leaf in extraordinary detail with nothing around it. Mm-hmm. And I... I I particularly think of things like fern leaves when I think of that. And you get a little bit of this when people do, you know, the pressed pressed flowers or leaves behind glass. Mm-hmm. There's something about taking it out of this area in which it's, you know, this place it's in, it's looks kind of like everything else in generally, right? A fern in the woods doesn't usually stick out all that much. And by focusing my attention on it, I realize the degree of beauty in, say, a single fern frond which is really hard to pay attention to on its own. Do you think that the reason that we find those sort of, let's call them extractions, do we find them beautiful because, say, that shape or that flat or that smell or that color is on its own something that's so beautiful? Or is it that it draws our attention to something that might be lost in the sort of total experience? 
Or is it I both? think it's I think it's the first one. I think that it's something that on its own is beautiful. I don't think that okay. its beauty depends on taking it out of context and directing our attention to it. Okay. That's interesting then that that flowers in their beauty are so maybe that's this is part maybe maybe we're starting to get to part of the answer that so many aspects of them are beautiful. Mm-hmm. So a tree most trees I find their forms beautiful and sometimes their color beautiful. Well, I and usually they're color beautiful, not striking, but usually beautiful. But they don't usually smell good. And depends on what you like. It depends. <laughs> sure, cedar trees are nice. Yeah, I'm thinking of an oak tree in my head. I'm thinking of an oak tree. There's like and there's like a pleasantness to you know crushed oak leaves mm-hmm. or or split oak but wood. But it is not part of the typical experience that we have of an oak tree. Yeah. Right, yes. <laughs> yeah. You're either cutting it up or something's gone really badly wrong, but. That's so interesting. I immediately, that immediately makes me, there's a part of me that says, yeah, but that's a different kind of beauty from flowers, right? There's a, Mm -hmm. there's a wholesome, the the words that I, I, if I started to break it down, I would start to use things like wholesome about the aesthetic experience of an oak Mm -hmm. or, or hearty or healthy or robust. These very different words from what I would use. It is, it, when I say beautiful, it doesn't, it doesn't connect, it's not the same kind of like, well, here's another weird thing. Flowers are beautiful in a similar way that women are beautiful. That's very strange. <laughs> yeah, why? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, <laughs> I, it's just weird. I mean, like, I, I have some, I have some really weird thoughts about it, like, that, there's some beauty related to the genera- to, to generation of new life. And I, and somehow that's expressed in flowers and in, and in, I mean, I don't think that I don't look at like a female cat and think that though. No. And I can think of other things that don't share that, that I find beautiful in the same way. Like I find certain flowers beautiful in almost an identical way as I find a starry sky beautiful. Interesting. Okay. That I'm yeah, not saying that's yeah. universal. No, 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 no. I, I mean, I can, I can, I can see that pretty clearly. Yeah, there is, or, or certain maybe certain running water, certain like beautiful shapes in water, like in a in like a clear creek. Mm-hmm. I can see some connection there between that and flower and certain flowers as well. It, but that so that all that to say the beauty the the beauty in an oak tree. First of all, it's less. It's going to be less obvious to me if you take extract one part of it out, as like, oh, this is an object of beauty. Certainly, it's going to fit more in the background. There's some. May, okay, that's one thing. That's, flowers, generally speaking, they are not background beauty, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. They are. They are. They are. Well, what would you contrast that to? What's not background beauty? I, so, or what is background beauty? Well, I, I can think of background beauty in my mind comes up, I, all kinds of things that come up quickly, like um, lichen-covered rocks, a brick wall, mm-hmm. uh, polished wood. These are things that I'm not going to like put down, you know, somewhere. They're not, I'm not going to frame it. You and, try it sometime, though. You might well, find sure. out that they're, yeah, <laughs> they're no, not I, background beauty. After. Well, again, that's, and that's, and that's sort of the point about the frond leaf, yeah. right? Is that the, the fern frond, the, um, it can, it can, but... But generally, the way that things are, mm-hmm. fla- but flowers are like, they're not the frame, they're the, they're the 
pick, and, and I'm then I'm thinking about like, well, what do we do when someone does something amazing? We we give them flowers. You know, what do we do when we want to draw attention to a table? We put flowers on it. What do you put on an altar? You put flowers on an altar. There's this something about the beauty of flowers. Most flowers again, that that is about that says, look here. Mm-hmm. Okay, well then that's interesting because we just said, just, yeah, flowers invite you to direct your attention. Yes, and they're sust- also sustained by attention, both human and and then other creatures. But something that's been sort of nagging at the back of my brain for the last couple minutes is that there is a certain unpossessibility about flowers. Yes. Okay. This. You, thank you for bringing this up. Yeah. You cannot. You you can't keep them. If you try to keep them, then either what you end up with is, you know, pressed flowers, which are yeah. beautiful in a different way. But they're not. But they're a not flower. They're not a flower. Yes. Or you end up with Hobby Lobby flowers, which we've already you know discussed. <laughs> or it's a <laughs> painting, work. which is again different. It's a different kind yes. of beauty. But be, flowers themselves don't have a possessible beauty, and it stars don't either. Yes, and nor do fireworks. Fire, yes, that's true. Yes, <laughs> fireworks don't. And this one is much more debatable, especially historically. I'm going to say that the beauty of women is also something you can't possess. Oh, I, I think you're onto something really, really profound there. Yes. So, I uh, you would I would say that and I would fact, say okay, that okay sorry just sorry <laughs> keep, keep going um, it's fine I mean, no you, this is I mean, this is so good the the like the tragedy of women's beauty is yes. that it does not last yes this is excellent so that that was kind of the last thing that I had wanted to bring that had been in my mind to bring in is the transience of the beauty of flowers I was thinking about it with with fireworks. Because when you and I went and watched fire, a, a beautiful fireworks show recently, the thing that kept it that wouldn't leave my mind is it's just just a split second, it's just mm-hmm. an absolute split second, and and then it's gone. And we love fireworks. And I I've been thinking like, well, it's not just about that one single moment. There's something there with fireworks. That, that sticks with you. And that's that's a whole other topic of discussion. But the flip side is, boy, do you pay attention to fireworks. <laughs> boy, do you pay attention to fireworks. Because if you don't, it's like you can't come back to it. They're not going to, you know. And and so I I, th- I think that I agree. I think that that in, impossessibility of flowers is, really has something to do with the beauty of them. And so... Does that mean that that we need a better word than unpossessibility? But for lack of a better word, the unpossessibility is that a characteristic of beauty? Mm. Do we need a different word to describe, say, what we find in the oak tree? Which I think, you know, in tree form is unpossessable but the very solidity of the tree i think communicates to us like this is something that you can depend on this is something that you could use in a time of need yeah 
Yeah, and the t- the whole the the life not the impression you get from flowers, <laughs> <laughs> right? And the and the life the 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 time scale that an oak tree lives on is sufficiently larger than ours as to be as to be an assumption that we can take. Mm-hmm. Basically, I I'm I. So you bringing up you, you, you the little side comment about trying to possess the beauty of women is absolutely fascinating to me because I think that's exactly it. I think that I, I, to, to take a very culturally heterodox position, I think that, and, and as a man, I think that so much of what we look back on and, and rightly, and in some cases rightly and in some cases wrongly see as, as abuse of the relationship between men and women. I think that if you're willing to have the charity is born out of a real desire to actually possess that beauty. Now, I, I've been listening to a lot of lectures from Thomistic thinkers recently, and I have no idea where this came from in all of that. So this is, this is, this is the problem with listening to the lectures and podcasts and things. Is that it's really, I, I can't locate it on a page. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially if it's not someone's voice that I recognize, then it's really hard. But there's, it's taught, speaking of beauty, it is that when you love something, sorry, not speaking of beauty, speaking of love, when you love something, you want to both possess it and for it to be something outside of you at the same time. And I think that when I think about, when I think about things like the beauty of flowers or stars or women, part of the reason that we, I think we are so, so drawn to them is that it's, it's our attempt to love them in that sense, to both possess them and for them to be there in their own right always fails. And I think, <laughs> I think it breaks our hearts. I think it's just been breaking our hearts for as long as we've been people. Hmm. And I think part of the reason that flowers have such a hold on us is because it plays out so quickly. You know, in a relationship between a man and a woman, oftentimes it takes a long time. Mm-hmm. With a flower, there's a sense in which that entire drama plays out in days. And and you're right, you end up with something else on the other side of it that isn't, that might be beautiful, but it isn't the flower. And, well, that just opens all kinds of doors, but I'll, 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 I'll bring this up, which is, I've been thinking, I'm, again, we've, we've talked about how much we're going to divulge about our personal lives. But I'm I'm married and I have children, and time is passing. Okay, which is just guaranteed for everyone. I wasn't. I know. I know that one is personal. (laughs) Time is passing, and and you know I I work really hard and my wife works really hard and it kind of it's wearing on us and we're getting you know we're 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 out of our like you know fresh early twenties and I've been thinking a lot about what what that means especially in terms of if I'm have the grace of growing old with my wife and how by certain, say 
by flower standards, she will not be as beautiful as she is now. And that seemed like a curse at first glance. And the more I've thought about it, the more that I have realized it's actually a really profound blessing because the degree to which I'm actually going to be able to have that right relationship of love with my wife, which is to both have her beauty inside of me somehow for that to be integrated into me somehow. And yet her also to be there is going to be most possible when my recognition of her beauty is not merely in her external appearance, but absolutely rooted in my love for her soul. Cause that, that beauty can get inside of me. Mm-hmm. That beauty can actually get inside of me. And so it's a merciful release because I, that, that the, 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 the flower beauty really grabs my attention. And that's what we've been talking about this whole time. All the way, everyone's attention is attracted by that. And, and to get over that, to get over that to, to real charity, to real caritas, to, is the best thing that I could do. And I fully believe that in the resurrection, it will all be there. Right? I think this is one thing that we should see in the resurrection and also in, in you know, I love Byzantine iconography. I think that that's part of what the icons are about is that sort of full integration of the flower beauty and the real beauty of the soul. And for whatever reason, we're just, we can't, we're really bad at doing it now. And I think that that, I think that when you look at flowers, I think that flowers being so transient is the same kind of severe mercy. It, 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 it draws you out of just the flower to something else. What do you think? You know, the flowers were the first thing that got us to, you can't possess that beauty. Yeah. And so I think you, you learned that. And if you, if you stop trying to possess it in that way, then it can become pure blessing. Yes. Yes. Hmm. And so, as you say, the even greater blessing will be when it's it's there forever. It's there forever. And what gives me hope to the tr- that we hit, hit on some actual truth in this is that when you read the Apocalypse of St. John, what he says will be given to those that prevail. It's, it's a crown. Right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's the beauty of the gems. It's a white robe, which really, I mean, our Lord says he's going to dress as finer than the beauty of the lilies. And it's the morning star. Hmm. <laughs> 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 all right. That's, that's all, folks. <laughs> that's good. 